Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Reflections from a man who quit using the internet right before the pandemic started. A meteorite older than Earth was discovered in the Sahara Desert. And playable music videos? How film and music are pulling more and more from gaming, both in terms of tech and mentality. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. This past weekend was the National Day of Unplugging. For about the past decade, it's been a period of 24 hours at the start of March when people around the world commit to not using their devices and taking a chance to chill out away from distractions. Maybe you took part, maybe you've thought about trying it out sometime, either on the official holiday or any time throughout the year. I will say it's a great experience. I've been unplugging for 24 hours the first weekend of every month since the start of the year, and I really enjoy it. In fact, I wish I could do it for longer. One guy, Aaron Rosenberg, did. He recently came out of a full year of quitting the internet. And yes, you did the math right, he decided to quit the internet just two months before the pandemic really kicked off in North America, right before most of the world became even more dependent on the internet than we had been in the past. His decision had nothing to do with the pandemic itself, and when lockdown measures started, he briefly considered if his commitment would still be feasible, but he kept going, from January 2020 to January 2021. His parameters were no internet of any kind, no computer, no smartphone, and no asking other people to look things up on his behalf. Now, I should note, Rosenberg was in a pretty privileged position to be undergoing this experiment. He's currently getting his PhD in education from McGill University in Montreal, and his specific focus is how internet use shapes students' learning. So he was kind of able to classify all the sacrifices he'd have to take as research, as his job. And crucially, he had another huge point of luck that I think enabled him to do this when others would not have been able to. His partner is an epidemiologist. So whereas others may have struggled to stay informed with necessary health and safety information throughout the pandemic, he was able to stay abreast of important news through his partner. He did listen to the radio as well, but I personally feel like that would have been a much larger risk were he not literally living with an epidemiologist. That said, just listening to the radio was apparently, quote, less panic-inducing, end quote. Rosenberg says it was a blessing to not have access to all the unverified information running rampant as people doom-scrolled through the nights last spring. And Rosenberg reports that his attention span increased significantly. He was able to focus while reading for much longer periods of time and make deeper observations. He also wrote a ton of letters to stay connected with people, as much as 250 a month. Now that said, it was tough maintaining relationships in some cases. His brother, for example, had a baby that he never got to see because during lockdown, the only way he would have would have been over video call, which he couldn't do. His classes also went virtual, and he had to ask for exceptions to be made for him, which he felt guilty about. But those pain points aside, Rosenberg says he really enjoyed the slower connections. Despite the hundreds of letters he wrote and received each month, quoting the New York Times, he didn't feel the nagging sense that his inbox typically triggered. There was no red notification icon or even really any expectation that I had to respond, he told me. I could let them sit as long as I liked. There was no sense of urgency, which meant I didn't resent the sender. 
That became a theme of Mr. Rosenberg's offline year. It wasn't necessarily his devices he detested, but the feeling of being on call at every moment. End quote. And I think that's an important point, because for all that Rosenberg quit, for all the distractions it eliminated, it didn't completely remove him from a world of devices and innovation. He says he broke his rules just once when he had to ask a friend to register for classes for him because the only way to do so was online. But I find it a little hard to believe that was truly the only time he asked someone else to do or look something up for him online. Not that he's lying, just that it probably happened in a less direct way than he may realize, like perhaps via his epidemiologist partner, which was pointed out to him by his academic advisor, quoting again, Yes, he'd relied on a friend to use the internet on his behalf, but he'd also been reliant on information networks throughout the year. For directions, for information on the pandemic, he was walking through a world in an analog fashion, but dependent on those who were still connected. We're taught to feel like we're being independent when we use these technologies to do things, he told me. But really, we're just tapping into massive networks and relying on huge groups of, well, people. In other words, it broke his superficial distinction between the offline world and the online world. End quote. And it's tough to truly be offline in an online world. But Rosenberg's experiment was still drastic, and that was only emphasized when he went back online at the start of this year. He says he was a little scared to do so. He'd enjoyed his offline year. Quote, As January 1st, 2021 ticked closer, he began to fear what was waiting for him. He imagined recoiling at social media, being unable to adjust. End quote. And I get that. Even when I go offline for just 24 hours, it's tough at the start, but by the end, I don't want to turn my devices back on. I'm usually some combination of stressed out or actively repulsed by the thought of having to turn my phone back on and reconnect with the world. So I can only imagine how intensely he felt that after an entire year. But... Once he was back online, it wasn't long before he was sucked in again. He was spending far more time online than he used to back before his experimental offline year. He said he was disoriented, unsettled, on hyperdrive, chasing likes and retweets and engagement for the serotonin hits even while he knew he didn't actually value them. Catherine Price, the author of How to Break Up With Your Phone, told the Times of Rosenberg's experiment, quote, in a way, he turned himself into a control group for what our brains would be like if we weren't consumed by constant information overload. It's really a cautionary tale. He stepped away during a tumultuous time and had a chance to reset. Now he's back at the mercy of these tools and he's experiencing all the consequences we experience every day, only we're habituated to them. He's showing us how sustainable our dependence on this frenetic system really is. End quote. And continuing from the New York Times, Mr. Rosenberg seems to realize this. We're all expected to engage with technology as if we've had my experience, he said, but most people don't know what the absence of this from their lives even feels like. Their observations have stuck with me. We frame our use of digital tools as a matter of choice, but are you making a choice if you're only familiar with a single option? Maybe. But is it an informed one? End quote. And I'll end with this quote that Rosenberg highlighted from Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude about the reaction of the residents of Macondo after the first telephone was installed in their village. Quote, It was as if God had decided to put to the test every capacity for surprise and was keeping the inhabitants of Macondo in a permanent alternation between excitement and disappointment, doubt 
and revelation to such an extreme that no one knew for certain where the limits of reality lay. End quote. And hey, clearly, I love the internet. I really do think we can't truly live offline in an online world, but continuing to prioritize balance and agency in how we engage with the internet is probably a good idea so that we can keep pushing for the best parts of the internet to prevail. Scientists have found a piece of a protoplanet in the Sahara Desert that is older than Earth. Quoting Vice, known as Ergcheck 002, or EC 002, the meteorite was forged within the crust of an ancient protoplanet, a small celestial body that serves as a building block for planets. The volcanic space rock is the oldest known lava that has ever fallen to Earth and offers an unprecedented glimpse of planetary formation in the early solar system, end quote. EC002 was found this time last year, but the findings were just published formally this week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And quoting Science Alert, According to the team's analysis, the rock is ancient. The radioactive decay of isotopes of aluminum and magnesium suggest that these two minerals crystallized about 4.565 billion years ago, an apparent body that accreted 4.566 billion years ago. Now, for context, Earth is 4.54 billion years old. This meteorite is the oldest magmatic rock analyzed to date and sheds light on the formation of the primordial crusts that covered the oldest protoplanets, the researchers wrote in their paper, end quote. And quoting again from Vice, in addition to its unrivaled age, EC002 is also notable for its unusual composition. The meteorite is 58% silicon dioxide, suggesting that its ancient parent body had a crust made of andesite rock, which is distinct from basalt, a more familiar igneous material that is common in volcanically active regions on Earth. Jean-Alex Barat, a professor of geochemistry at the University of Western Brittany in France, and his colleagues note that these andesitic crusts were probably abundant in asteroids and protoplanets during the solar system's early days, but that they have become extremely scarce in the billions of years since that bygone era. Ancient protoplanets were either incorporated into larger bodies, such as Earth, or were blasted apart by collisions with other rocks in the tumultuous and crash-prone period of our solar system. The team estimates that EC002 was ejected from its parent body by one of these encounters mere decades after the protoplanet's crust cooled and crystallized, revealing amazing new details about the evolving embryos of planets during a time before Earth existed. End quote. So this four billion year old baby planet that never was may hold the key to uncovering way more information about the formation of planets, or as some people on the internet are concerned, this extremely rare and curious space rock could also hold the key to the end of the world. Maybe we shouldn't mess with it? Either that, or see if we can mine it into vibranium. Being able to play music videos like a game might become more of a thing now that a North Texas-based indie band have used a game engine to create a playable music video of the lead single off their upcoming album. Now, while this is definitely exciting in terms of the merging of music and gaming in ways that I, a non-gamer and non-developer, barely understand, I also have to cop that I'm mostly excited about this because this is a band from back home that I grew up listening to. My good friend's older brother was even one of their drummers back in the day. 
The band is Fishboy, and the single is Greatness Waitress off their seventh album, Waitsgiving, which is coming out on April 2nd. You can watch the music video for Greatness Waitress as a straight-up video on YouTube. The premise is an animated concert with the band members rendered as elderly digital versions of themselves. Or you can play it in your browser using the WASD keys to basically explore around a virtual concert performance. Virtual concerts have, of course, become a pretty big thing this past year, but as Ars Technica points out, even 360-degree and immersive VR versions of concerts and music videos usually assign you a specific seat, just one vantage point from which to view the action. In Fishboy's new game-slash-video, you can move around wherever you want at the performance, hopping up on stage and going behind the musicians, zooming in to find easter eggs and zooming out for a bird's-eye view, or even going behind the stage to see a poster-laden fence behind the set. It was built with the Unity 3D game engine after Fishboy lead Eric Mishner got hooked up with animator and Fishboy fan Dan Beeson on Instagram. Mishner is a video editor by day and has applied his skills to Fishboy projects in the past, but says it never occurred to him to use a gaming engine. Quoting Ars Technica, When Beeson and Mishner began to talk about a possible collaboration, which Beeson admits was a ploy to sneak an early listen to a Fishboy album, Beeson already had a workflow in mind, translating Mishner's 2D art into animated 3D characters, modeling, texturing, and rigging the set in Maya and Blender, and using Unity to compile the assets. I've been making games for the good part of a decade now and never really thought to merge the two disciplines of music and gaming, Beeson adds. But the process of applying a gaming engine to a music video was a revelation, he says, especially compared to trying to make animation projects entirely by yourself. Rendering just a second of animation can take hours, he says. If you need an edit on a shot, there's your whole night. Meanwhile, Greatness Waitress worked out as a humbly scaled project, requiring about an evening to build looping animations for each modeled character. The lip sync was done in kind of a weird way, Beeson says. I found a way to do motion sketching or puppeteering in Blender. I ran the song and scaled a circle up and down to make it look like a mouth. It looked way better than it had any right to. This only took him roughly 2 minutes and 30 seconds, exactly how long the song is, he notes. After framing the virtual set for an intentionally filmed video, Beeson and Mishner gave the assets a second pass for more interactive fun, including teases about the full album's rock opera story. End quote. Sam Makovich at Ars Technica thinks we're likely to see more and more of this type of merging of gaming tech and ethos with music going forward as game engines like Unity and Unreal become more accessible, and as the pandemic changes the types of creative expression that some artists are seeking out. Even if it's a little strange that we haven't seen as much of this overlap already. He points out the long history of popular music being incorporated into video games and various dabbles by the music industry into emerging tech, like with interactive experiences on CD-ROMs tied to album releases. He said, quote, It's not a Doom clone starring Iron Maiden or a hilarious light gun game starring Aerosmith, but this playable music video arguably heralds a new era, one where video game engines and thus a gaming mentality have become utterly foundational in pop culture. End quote.
That is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.